Good afternoon and welcome to the three o'clock session. This is Greg Lois. If you're with me here today, it's to learn everything that's new, everything that's changing, everything that has recently changed uh, in New York uh, medical treatment under our workers' compensation law. So uh, what are we gonna talk about today? First of all, I am gonna talk about some basics. So if you're here today just to pick up uh, some tips and tricks about uh, how the medical treatment guidelines work, good news, you're in the right place. I'm gonna talk about everything that's new. Uh, so I'm gonna talk about the new guidelines that were just announced a couple weeks ago and uh, that are in the open comment pe period right now. I'm gonna talk about uh, the new CMS 1500 forms which are coming into play very soon, uh, theoretically. And I'm gonna be talking about uh, the change in the statute providing an employer a credit after 130 weeks of uh, compensation or after 130 weeks after the data loss actually and why maximum medical improvement findings are going to be even more important now. Uh, as you know this is completely and totally live so please ask me questions it makes it so much more fun when we get to the end uh, which we should be there in about 15 minutes by the way uh, that I have a whole bunch of questions to ask or answer uh, that have come up maybe during this presentation and I won't say your name uh, I'll just say your first name and I'll answer the question the best I can all right uh, please type your questions in again makes it so much more fun for me and for you all right, why are medical benefits in New York so darn uh, expensive, drive cost, uh, and make the cases harder to shut down? Well, the answer is that the claimant drives medical. The claimant can pick their own treating physicians, their own facilities, their own doctors. And of course, uh, this is one of the main benefits of workers' compensation, that medical care is uh, essentially free to the injured worker. There is no deductible, no co-payments, same thing for medications. Uh, and they can pick any doctor they want in the state of New York, and uh, that is coded by the board, and the board has a very high percentage of uh, network penetration in that regard. So really, as a claimant, uh, being able to pick your own physician and go to them, most of them are taking uh, workers' compensation insurance. That's great. Uh, the board currently codes uh, physicians, uh, chiropractors, uh, amongst various, uh, various specialties, and that is now expanding to also include uh, some social workers and other types of practitioners, including acupuncturists. So lots of different treatment choices there. Um, now, even though you can choose any doctor you want and you can direct in, uh, your own care, it is subject to something called medical treatment guidelines, which are essentially pathways uh, for six of the most common injury types. And there are even more pathways uh, being uh, suggested by the board, which we'll get into in just a minute. Um, the employer can try to control costs by requiring that the claimant uh, use a preferred provider network uh, for the first 30 days. However, this is essentially illusory in the state because uh, after 30 days, the employee can simply select to go to their own doctors. Now, how is the employee selecting doctors? Well, they're going to the doctors that their attorneys tell them to go them to, and these are the doctors who essentially find everybody to be temporarily totally disabled at all times, even from a paper cut. Uh, so it's a bit of an exaggeration, but really easy to get an out-of-work note in this state. Um, we can direct or select a diagnostic network, and of course we can direct um, uh, prescription management as well. Uh, New York has a drug formulary, which I'll be talking about a little bit later in this presentation. Before the reforms of 2010, 2010, that's nine years ago now, uh, the average case was taking 6.4 years uh, to get to maximum medical improvement. That's insane. Uh, the idea that you would be temporarily partially disabled and under active medical care uh, for 6.4 years is truly, truly nuts. 
there were reforms that started phasing in after 2010, 2012. We got medical treatment guidelines, uh, new disability duration guidelines, et cetera. And so the board has done a lot to try to curb this. That's been both a statutory changes as well as regulatory changes as well as guidelines issued by the board itself. Now, the goal of some of the new things that are coming down the pike is to reduce that even further. Uh, and we're going to talk about some of the barriers to moving a case along to maximum medical improvement. Now, medical gets out of control in New York really because the claimant can direct and control their own care. Uh, the claimant can pick physicians that the claimant knows is going to keep them out of work uh, or recommend more and more palliative treatment. And by palliative, I mean uh, physical therapy after six months or acupuncture, uh, chiropractic, all the sorts of treatments that aren't exactly curative. They are not actually going to uh, help you reach a medical plateau or restore any sort of function or reduce impairment. These just make you feel better. And for a long time in New York, uh, the judges have sort of simply rubber-stamped more and more palliative care. Uh, there's a lot of uh, lack of common sense in this system. The idea that somebody could be temporarily disabled 10 or 15 years after their loss is ridiculous. Uh, obviously, the common sense uh, is gone in the system where consequentials and expanding claims are in almost every case. Cases start off like a left ankle sprain and six months later it's all oh, my left ankle sprains fine now but now I have a right ankle pain because I was favoring that ankle and then that goes into a low back uh, claim because my gait was altered I was walking with a limp and then of course you get the consequential psychiatric which is depression in other words I feel bad because I don't go to work so I don't go to work and I get feeling even worse so all of these ridiculous consequential almost throw-in type claims uh, really slow down the ability uh, to this person to come back to work and oftentimes it's not their desire to come back to work. Uh, guidelines. The New York does have medical treatment guidelines, but they are not applied in a regular and consistent manner. In the beginning, particularly, they were very inconsistently applied. Well, that is getting better over time. All right, let's talk about the current medical treatment guidelines. Uh, there are currently six uh, medical treatment guidelines. Uh, they cover the six most common injured body parts, uh, and they've been in place uh, since 2014. The first one, of course, uh, is for non-acute pain. That's a relatively recent guideline, uh, and it deals with uh, non-acute, meaning non-immediate non pain. Uh, it talks about opiates, opioid dependency, and uh, strategies. Uh, mid and low back claims, neck injuries, knee injuries, shoulder injuries, and of course carpal tunnel syndrome are all covered uh, by the original medical treatment guidelines. Now, there um, is great training available on the medical treatment guidelines. Uh, it's provided by the board. I think it's the best uh, training that the board does. Uh, wonderful uh, little web-based modules that you can go through. I really strongly recommend it. And here at Lois LLC, uh, we require uh, that all employees, every single person uh, that works here takes these trainings and get these little diplomas and turn them in because I think that training is really good and I don't say that lightly. I think some of the training on the, that the board offers for uh, various things and particularly the disability duration guidelines is really bad. It uh, doesn't make any sense. Uh, but the medical treatment uh, guideline training is excellent. In fact, in my book, I, my chapter basically says go look at Go watch the web uh, tutorials that the board has. They're really good. All right, uh, coming soon, new medical treatment guidelines. So the board has not given us a specific date as to when these will become effective, uh, but they are looking at hip and groin injuries, foot and ankle injuries, elbow injuries, and occupational interstitial lung disease. 
the comment period is currently open for these, and that comment period will be open through September 28, 2019. Uh, so these are still very much a work in progress. Of course, uh, wonderful Workers' Compensation Board. Uh, thanks for interstitial lung disease. That's not a big deal. Give me one, a medical treatment guideline uh, for depression, please. Uh, for psychiatric after-acquired depression. Uh, that's the most typical, you know, nonsense throw-in that comes into our workers' compensation cases and causes the exposure value and the medical treatment costs to go through the roof. All right. Uh, I'd like to just focus for a second on the definition of maximum medical improvement in New York. For a very long time, uh, this term uh, was very loosey-goosey. Uh, however, it is defined in the regulations, and it is the point at which further care is not going to result in objective improvement, and objective improvement meaning a reduction in impairment or an increase in functional ability. So we're really looking at the point, maximum medical improvement, it's really the point of medical plateau. The claimant's treatment is just simply not getting them any better, and that can be objectively measured. Now, in, um, throughout the beginning of my practice in workers' compensation, up until 2013, uh, we would go to court and argue that the claimant has reached maximum medical improvement. Judge, it's time to move on. Let's move on to classification or settlement or uh, scheduled loss of use and settlement. And uh, the claimant would come to court and go, oh, well, the uh, doctor I'm treating with says that maybe someday I'm going to get a surgery, and therefore I'm not really at maximum medical improvement. And the judge of compensation would simply accept that. Well, in 2013, uh, the board did issue guidance, which is very good, and I always point people to this guidance, which says the mere assertion of the potential or possibility for future care is not the same as saying the claimant has not reached MMI. And the fact that maybe in the future, maybe someday, there's some treatment they could maybe get uh, should not be a bar to a finding of maximum medical improvement today. If the claimant comes into court, and it literally says this in the bulletin, if the claimant comes to court and says, judge, I'm not at maximum medical improvement because there's maybe a surgery I'm contemplating taking, the judge is to find them at MMI unless that surgery is actually scheduled for a date certain. In other words, coming to court just saying, well, maybe I'll have some more treatment, maybe someday, is not going to be good enough. And I love that bulletin, and I love to spread it around everywhere I go. Uh, quick reminder, uh, we're at least halfway through at this point, so please, uh, if you have questions, please be typing them in now. I'd love to see those questions. All right, uh, another great thing that happened uh, in 2017 uh, was the workers' compensation law was changed, and this is going to be a huge benefit to employers, and it's going to hinge on that definition of maximum medical improvement. But the way the law was changed in 2017 was that for cases with a date of loss after April 10, 2017, the employer, the carrier, will get a credit after 130 weeks of temporary disability or after 130 weeks after the date of loss. This is awesome, and it says the employer shall get the credit. Uh, so uh, this addresses essentially the failure of physicians to find maximum medical improvement in a case because the board is now saying that after 130 weeks or after two and a half years of medical care and intermittent lost time or lost time or even no lost time, after that point, your injuries are really plateaued. You've, you've reached MMI. And it says that it is the burden of the claimant to prove that they haven't reached MMI. So this really does address that tactic of claimants to stay on temp forever and use temp as this way they can escape out of work whenever they want to. So after 130 weeks of, of uh, post-loss, we, the employer or carrier, will get a credit on permanent disability. That's great. It's not a 
cap on temp, so technically you could still have a thousand weeks of temporary disability, which is insane, but it, it's a real thing. New York does not have a cap on temporary disability like other states, for example, New Jersey. After 400 weeks of temporary disability, they say, no, you're not temporarily disabled anymore. You're permanently disabled. Get out of here. Uh, and it, it transforms into a, a, a finding of permanent disability. New York doesn't have that. That's too bad, but it's darn close. Uh, now, this applies to cases with a date of loss after April 10, 2017, and it will phase in on October 9, 2019. So, uh, right now, we're telling clients, let's start red flagging cases, and we want to be ready to argue that that claimant, that it was a normal case, they've been on uh, temp or not on temp for 130 weeks, and now we're supposed to get the credit. Now, of course, uh, this wouldn't be New York workers' compensation law if there wasn't a huge loophole. Now, the board doesn't call it a loophole. They call it the safety valve, but I call it a loophole. And the loophole is this. The claimant can argue uh, that the uh, that if they, they had not reached maximum medical improvement after 130 weeks, and therefore the credit really shouldn't apply. Okay? So that argument is going to be up to the claimant. The statute is worded in such a way that it is clear to me that there is a presumption because it says it shall. There shall be a credit after 130 weeks. So that's good for us. Uh, we can expect claimant to come in and, of course, argue uh, that what they've been saying all along, but my doctor says I may need surgery someday, judge. I'm not really an MMI. And we, as defense counsel and risk professionals, really need to be ready with that definition of maximum medical improvement, pointing out that everything's been done under the medical treatment guidelines, and really, judge, it's time to move on to classification, scheduled loss of use, or permanency. I think that this is going to be a great thing for us because it's going, and by us I mean the defense side, employer side, because it'll give us that leverage moment that we need to try to move a case forward and it'll, and it'll come automatically in every case at 130 weeks. All right, very quickly, uh, new forms are coming. Uh, the board is going to be replacing all of the C family of forms, so all your favorite C-4, uh, C-4.2, all of our good guys, they're all going to be gone. Uh, the only one that's going to stay is the C-4.3, which is the Doctor's Report of Permanent Impairment, or MMI. It's being replaced with the CMS-1500. Have you ever seen a CMS-1500 in your real life? First of all, I'm sorry for you because they are inscrutable, hard to read, they look like a, like a computer vomited on a screen, and they do not include a medical narrative. So the board now is a rule that says you have to submit the CMS, or if you're going to submit a CMS-1500 in lieu of a C4 family of form, uh, you must also include a medical narrative, which is creating a problem, and the problem is that how does that medical narrative, which is going to be some kind of document, marry up with the CMS-1500? And so there are now medical clearinghouses and data clearinghouses. There's 12 or 13 of them that look like they're authorized or approved by the board right now uh, to do that sort of connection for you and make sure that the narrative is with the CMS-1500. Please note, a CMS-1500 is defective and invalid on its face unless it is accompanied by a valid medical narrative written by the treating physician. And that medical narrative has to include the claimant's subjective complaints, the objective findings of the physician, the assessment or plan, uh, the social history if relevant, uh, the state of prior medicals, and the ability to work. The workability is very important, has to be in that medical narrative, so that's something. All right, uh, drug formulary uh, came into effect this year, and we now have a drug formulary. Uh, it is published uh, in my my brief sort of two cents overview of it is you essentially have a, a list, a set of lists for the first 30 days, what treatments are going to be or what medications are going to be available and provided. And then after that, you go to the medical treatment guidelines uh, for uh, the medication schedules and the pre-authorized medications. 
these formulary will be in play and for all new prescriptions and refills as of June 5, 2020. It will be effective in all cases. Also, uh, New York is a medicinal marijuana state. Uh, medicinal marijuana has expanded from its uh, original compassionate, compassionate use limitations really for people with end-stage cancers and, and extreme circumstances. And now it's being prescribed for essentially everything and including subjective pain. Uh, so we are seeing medicinal marijuana. Of course, an employer or carrier cannot be directed by a workers' compensation law judge to pay for medicinal marijuana, only to reimburse the claimant for medicinal marijuana that they've already purchased on their own uh, through a dispensary. Um, all right, that's a little bit about that. Let's talk just in general about controlling medical costs, and then I'm hoping that there's lots and lots of great questions for you to answer. So, controlling medical costs. First of all, uh, we have a very difficult challenge here, which is overcoming this claimant-directed care, the fact that the claimant can choose anyone they want. Also, our communication with the physician is limited by regulation. We are not allowed to communicate with the physician, the claimant's treating physician, outside the presence of the claimant or without copying in their attorney and the workers' compensation board. That's called undue influence, and we will be penalized for doing it. Uh, so how do we communicate with the treating physician? And the answer is in writing, Often, uh, one of the best things you can do with the treating physician in New York is provide them with a good job description and what light duty assignments are available in the workplace. Uh, that's fine to communicate uh, to the treating physician. Of course, do that in writing, copy all parties. Uh, we really want to give a good job description as to exactly what this person was doing because, I mean, I've read uh, doctor's notes in which the claimant says, well, I'm lifting four and a half tons of material every day and I've got this heavy job. It's, no, you're not lifting it. You're operating a forklift that's moving it around. You know, they really exaggerate their circumstances. Of course, they're also choosing physicians who are paternalistic and more likely to provide other nonsense treatment and or keep the claimant out of work. So we have to be wary of that. Uh, New York's a state in which IME and peer review is extremely important, very useful. I think that IMEs should be conducted uh, after a very careful letter has been written to the IME doctor telling them exactly what they need. Uh, I also believe very strongly in nurse case management, particularly in moving the case along or helping the case move along, offering to help schedule things uh, for the claimant offering to schedule that MRI, offering to schedule that next physical therapy visit, because if we leave it to the claimant, uh, instead of going from doctor office to MRI, back to the doctor to have it read, then go to physical therapy, they will stretch that out, and so two or three visits over two or three months. Obviously, it shows no medical urgency on their behalf, uh, but it's allowed by the board, and again, this non-common sense approach is, well, the more treatment you get, the longer it's gone on, the worse you must be, versus, hey, you must be skeptical, uh, you know, uh, an ankle sprain shouldn't keep you out of work for 13 years, you know, these types of things. All right, uh, I would also focus on pharmacy benefits management, particularly in the opioid world, um, and with now the medicinal marijuana that we're beginning to see more and more often. Your risk professionals should be rigorously applying the medical treatment guidelines, and defense attorneys should be uh, strongly defending our denied variances and the authorizations for further adventures in medicine that are going on. In this jurisdiction, we have a lot of doctors who like to experiment with things, doing things like PRP injections and all sorts of weird stuff, and we have claimants come into court and say, well, you know, Peyton Manning got this uh, crazy injection in his neck. Now I want the same injection. Uh, you know, there may not be any medical literature to support that. Uh, we're also expanding the types of medical providers that are going to be allowed under our statute to include things like acupuncturists. So uh, really, risk professionals need to be on their toes about the treatment that's coming in and requests for authorizations.
All right, I'm now gonna move into live question and answer. This is the part where I answer questions from the crowd. I will not say your name, so I'm looking for lots of good questions in here. Melissa asked the first question. If a carrier gets an IME with determination of maximum medical improvement, can we deny future bills and treatment, or do both physicians have to find MMI? Love that question. I love that question because it really gets to the heart of one of the problems that we always have. I know what maximum medical improvement is, but I don't think any claimant doctors know what it is. I don't think I've ever seen a voluntary maximum medical improvement from a treating physician. It's really rare. Claimant almost would have to like walk into their office and say, please send me back to work. I can't stay out and sit on the couch and drink beer and watch Judge Judy anymore. Please send me back, right? Uh, so we rarely see it. So yes, often we're getting a finding of maximum medical improvement from our selected physician. They're going out and finding their own doctor, of course, says they're totally disabled at all times for anything. And we have to, you know, litigate that issue or compromise that issue. So that is frequently debated. Our doctors are much less paternalistic, much more conservative, uh, much more skeptical. And so generally speaking, we do have that fight. Um, uh, do both physicians have to find MMI? The answer is no. We can always pitch it to the judge and make the judge make the decision as to which doctor is more credible. All right. Uh, Claudia asked the question, uh, what's happening with telemedicine? Will this be approved anytime soon? So I think telemedicine is a great thing. I was going to mention it here as one of the ways to reduce costs, except for it's really super duper dangerous and problematic in New York, particularly in circumstances where the tele the, the uh, provider has to be uh, New York board coded, right? Uh, we cannot interfere with their selection of a physician. So we can offer a telemedicine service to a claimant. We could say, look, you know, you're, you're waiting two weeks to get to the specialist. I could have your MRI read by, by someone tomorrow and you could have a, a, a wonderful consult with them or, or any other sort of permutation of telemedicine that we can imagine. Uh, the problem is we'd have to get the claimant to buy into that. Again, if in our imaginations, uh, the claimant is trying to get better and struggle back to work. Uh, not the cases I see. Now, I only see the cases that get litigated, so I'm seeing this tiny sliver of the actual claim population. Uh, but in our circumstances, uh, it's a fight, and they don't really take advantage of many of the um, things that we're affording them. So when it gets to my desk and it's going to be litigated and I only see the ugly ones, I don't think that telemedicine uh, is going to be something that right now is going to be useful where the claimant will not um, uh, agree to it or, or is amenable to it. Uh, and it's particularly acute in areas of New York, in rural areas of New York and upstate New York where there just aren't specialists. Um, all right, Steve asked the question, do you think it might be best to schedule an IME before cases have been established? I ask because I do not want our IME to make any comments that put us in worse position. However, on the flip side, I think it would help with some of the claims where we can tell they are already suggesting the whole body is causally related to an accident. All right, so Steve, I get the feeling you've done this once or twice. And yeah, sometimes when a, a brand new case is referred to me, we're looking at this thing going, all right, we see who the claimant's attorney is, we see the doctors they're going to, and we know this they're going to eventually have their whole body and or the situation where you have a simple slip and fall at work, it's witnessed, it's an accepted compensable claim, they clearly fell down on their left side, and within a week of seeing their attorney, which happened, by the way, three days post-loss, now it's right shoulder, 
right knee, right elbow, left elbow. You know, it's the entire body. It was somehow I slipped, fell, and injured my entire body, which is impossible. So yeah, in those circumstances, uh, maybe an IME immediately would be useful. Now, I'm very uh, worried about using IMEs too soon in a case because I don't want to establish in body parts that aren't established. And I would also tell you in a circumstance like that, particularly where you have a, a slip and fall or maybe you have a video in the workplace that we're going to be able to provide to our IME doctor and really whittle down or narrow down exactly the body parts that are involved in this claim. I really want to make sure that we're writing a very good, strong IME cover letter, really telling the IME doctor exactly what we're looking for. Okay, uh, Dennis asked the question, does the credit or cap include both temporary partial disability and temporary total disability or any temp or only temporary total disability? Okay, so entertainingly, Dennis, the way the statute's written, uh, we think it applies to all, all of it. And we also think that the uh, cap could apply from the defense perspective, even if no money had actually been paid. The simple fact that 130 weeks have elapsed seemed to indicate that there is a presumption that the credit should apply on weeks, that the weeks after that should be deemed perm weeks. So that's interesting. Now, that is going to absolutely be litigated. Well, last week, we had a conversation in which one of my attorneys who've represented claimants for a very long time, uh, took the position that, no, 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 it should only be temporary partial weeks and intermittent weeks should all be added up and limited down. So I think that the plaintiff's bar, the claimant's bar, is absolutely going to argue that it only applies to temporary partial weeks and only paid weeks, not just elapsed weeks. Uh, Larry uh, asked the question, if claimant gets periodic awards on a claim to extend disability and medical treatment, does that extend the 130-week period? Uh, we think the answer is no. Now, again, no case law on this, and it hasn't even phased in until October, but the law as written does not suggest that. Uh, uh, Carolina asked the questions, are nurse practitioners currently required to have their notes signed off by a treating medical doctor, uh, or is this part of the upcoming change? So, yes, right now. Uh, they have to have their notes signed off by the treating doctor. Entertainingly, uh, the doctor doesn't actually even have to be present in the building. Uh, the doctor only has to be available via phone uh, in order to ratify those notes. So that's a sort of interesting uh, 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 permutation. All right. Uh, uh, Melissa asked the question, uh, what's the no your knowledge of iStop compliance on pharmacy? Yes, New York is an iStop state, so yes, we should be doing uh, data matching on opioids, seeing if the prescription is being filled more than once and across jurisdictions. Now, problematically, I think that Pennsylvania, which is one of our uh, very closely situated states, is not. Uh, so that is a problem, and we do have that problem sometimes, uh, I believe, in my New Jersey cases where they're traveling over the border. All right, uh, I think that's all the questions we have, so I'm glad there were so many great questions. Uh, thanks, everybody, for sticking around. If you have more questions or this conversation brings up more ideas, please feel free to email me. I'd be very interested to talk about them with you. All right. Have a great week, everyone. Uh, see you next time.